I'm Molly Alter. And I'm Brian Offit. And together we're the hosts of Hands On, a new podcast from Index Ventures. Hands On is all about giving listeners an authentic look at how startup leaders drive success, growth, and strategy. Like picking something up and examining it from all angles, with Hands On, we look closely at what it takes to build companies, careers, and relationships. We've got a lot of experience in this arena, but it's really our guest stories that shine brightest. And it's our privilege that they so freely share their treasured insight and hard-earned wisdom with us. And you, our listeners. So now, without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hands-On Podcast. I'm here today with James Rubin. James founded Hellosaurus, which is an interactive video platform that teaches kids real-world topics and skills. Some people refer to it as the next generation of Sesame Street. He founded it in late 2019 and serves as the CEO. And prior to Hellosaurus, James was the head of product at HQ Trivia, which I'm sure you listeners remember where he led all product management and development from prototypes to international phenomena. James was previously a product lead at Google. He graduated from Harvard and was named Forbes 30 under 30. Hi, James. Hello. Thank you for having me and for the awesome introduction. I appreciate that. Well, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today, and we're going to get into all sorts of topics from building a brand that is for children to your childhood heroes, to transitioning from a product role to leading a company. But before we do that, I like to start with some icebreakers. And one of my favorite ones, which I'd love to hear from you, are words to live by, an aphorism you stand by. And then I want to hear words not to live by, something that you really can't stand and you think is overused. Yeah, for sure. Words to live by that run through my head all the time is a a Chinese proverb that is Roughly, I will say it in English because I can't say it in Chinese, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Basically meaning don't hang your head low on things that you should have done in the past. Yes, things take time, but you can't affect what you did 20 years ago. You can't affect what you do right now. So you could have planted that tree 20 years ago. The second best time is to do it today. So get going. And so I, I, love, I love that. that. And then not to live by. I grew up with a twin sister, and so maybe this is this was said to me a lot by my parents, but it doesn't matter who started it is one that I really don't like. I think that you know, maybe it was using conflict resolution sometimes, and that like it does matter who started it generally, but also I think in the workplace as well, like it, it does matter where ideas come from, what you're riffing off of, what where things originate from, because you, you can learn a lot of, about those original settings. So maybe both personally and professionally, it doesn't matter who started it is not a phrase that I like to use. I love that. And I definitely used to hear that a lot in my family, tons of sibling conflict. And I think now, you know, in the in the startup world, that really resonates. It makes a difference to be the first mover. And it makes a difference to have built something from the ground up when a category maybe wasn't created. Even if you have a lot of fast followers, I think that really can set you apart. For sure. You are building a company that is targeting children. So one thing before we get into the actual business, one thing I want to know about you and your childhood was who you looked up to and and who your childhood hero or heroes were. 
So my childhood hero, which is maybe classic in the New York as a kid growing up in New York City, but was Derek Jeter. He had one goal his whole life, which was basically to be the shortstop of the New York Yankees. That was, I think, a goal of mine maybe at some point too, but I gave that up very quickly. But less about his kind of athletic prowess that I was never going to be able to attain. He had a very clear goal, a very clear mission, and he achieved that dream while also staying incredibly loyal to the city of New York, to his teammates, and also being a really an upstanding citizen and a part of the, the community and, and transcended sports as well. So Derek Jeter was somebody that I looked up to a lot. And I had a, a Derek Jeter like t-shirt jersey that I wore, I think, most days uh, of my youth. So he's, he's a big hero of mine. It's so funny. You know, actually, when I was growing up, my childhood hero was also in the baseball world. I'm grew up around New York, but my parents were both from Chicago. And so I was a big Chicago Cubs fan. And Sammy Sosa was like my God. Amazing. And I dreamed of being the first female pitcher for the Chicago Cubs. And even though he's not a pitcher, I still, you know, he was the slugger of the early 2000s. And then as what happens with many childhood heroes, he had a downfall. He corked his bat and it was like a huge scandal. It shattered my world when Sammy Sosa corked his bat. And I actually think there's probably an interesting lesson to take from that where, you know, maybe you look up to people and not everything is as it seems and people are imperfect. And that's a part of growing up, too. For sure. I don't know whatever happened to Sammy Sosa, but I might Google that after we record this. (laughs) Something I'm I'm curious on, I guess, a, a slightly more serious note. You know, we talk to a lot of a lot of founders, a lot of visionaries who kind of derive strength and focus and vision from past experiences that have been difficult or hard. And I'm curious, you know, when you think back on your life, what's been something that's really difficult that you've had to surmount? It can be large or small, you know, physical or mental, personal, professional. Yeah. But what's something that, you know, you think is is one of the harder things that you've experienced? Yeah. So on the professional side, and we can get into this later as well, but at HQ Trivia, my close friend and CEO at the time, Colin, passed away as he was the CEO. And that was very difficult professionally. It was unexpected to us and, and the team and so his, his friends and his coworkers. And so just figuring out how to rally the company together and move forward and continue to achieve the vision that, that he had set forward for the company was hard. Great friends became even closer friends through that process. And I think we did a lot of great work that he would have been proud of. But I think that was a very hard moment for us in time in the HQ trivia. I can't even imagine. I mean, you know, so many people have difficult things happen at work, but but it's actually really helpful to remember that things are not oftentimes they're not life and death. And, you know, it, it's really good to put that in perspective and must have been just super challenging for for you and the team. Yeah. Um, Excuse the baseball callback, I guess, but it was a a true (laughs) curveball, a true curveball in life. But again, I think we all, of course, wish you were still with us, but became stronger and closer because of it. Totally. And then I guess the last icebreaker that we'll do today, something we have in common is that we both like to run in New York (laughs) City. And so what I want to know is your preferred running route in New York, but then also a crucial component of running, at least in my opinion, (laughs) is the food that you eat afterwards to make up for the calories you've burned. So I want to know your preferred running route. And then I want to know, you know, after you run, let's say a marathon, what is your first meal? Where do you eat in New York? Yeah. What will you order? Great question. So I grew up all the way east. So running 
up and down the east side of Manhattan is my preferred running route. You get a lot of different neighborhoods as you start going all the way down. Of course, the Central Park run is great. It's a little hillier, a little harder. And so we get those in on the weekends, maybe. But up and down the the east side of Manhattan is is definitely at least what I was raised on. So love that. And then hard to beat a New York City bagel. So I'm definitely a bagel guy. Some runners eat plain carbs before they run. I'm not a big pre-run fuel person. So I think a lot about bagels as I'm running and make sure that I treat myself afterward. I love it. That's that's a good one. I guess just the final follow-up there is like, are we talking bacon, egg, and cheese on a plain bagel? Or are we talking bagel purist and only cream cheese and maybe some salt? So if it's a breakfast, it's definitely bagel and cream cheese. I maybe have to attribute this to my mom, but but turkey, coleslaw, Russian dressing is a bagel combo that maybe you don't hear very often, but was in my household, consumed a good amount. And so I go there a good amount. Um, oh my God, I cannot, you lost me at Russian dressing. You're not a mayo person? Is it a No, ketchup? I'm not a mayo person. Yeah. And on a bagel, no less, that is I know. an assault I, on humanity. I know. It keeps me going. Keeps me going. Oh, but again, wow. We're not all perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have some things in common, but we have other things that we are starkly opposed. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll take a, a quick break now. But when we return, we're going to dig a little bit deeper on what exactly you're building at Hellosaurus, some of the challenges you've had transitioning from a product role to a CEO role, and then some of the things that are really unique about building a children's business. So we'll touch on those in uh, in a minute. Hey, so welcome back. Very lucky to have James Rubin here from Hellosaurus. And we're going to talk a little bit about what he's building, how he's building it, and go into some deeper questions. Starting off, James, tell us a little bit about Hellosaurus. How would you describe it, I guess, to a six-year-old, which might be your, your customer? <laughs> That's a great question. So to a six-year-old, we'd say they're interactive stories on your devices that let you be anything whenever you want. And so that's what we'd say to a six-year-old. To their parent, we'd talk about an interactive video platform that allows kids to learn about the world and develop real-world skills, as you kind of mentioned earlier. And so you know, a lot of our content essentially takes the format of be a blank with blank. So be a pilot with the Wiggles, you know, be a firefighter with Katie, be a paleontologist, Lori Berkner. And through these interactive stories, kids can learn about all these different cool roles and developments, and then also be the hero in the story. You know, the interactive nature of the platform allows them to actually completely break the fourth wall and jump into the narrative. All of this, of course, is done on a mobile device. And so, you know, we're, we're an iPad, iPhone product right now, an iOS product right now, and we'll be expanding to other platforms later. But it allows us to use the microphone, the camera, the multi-touch screen, to really bring kids into the experience in a way that just was never possible before these amazing devices. Do you see this as an education company, a media company, a little bit of both? Where does it tend to tilt? Yeah, it's a great question. A little bit of both. I mean, I think that that this is one of the things I know you mentioned before our break about the intricacies of the kids business. But one of them is what's entertaining and what's educational as and we focus on two to eight year olds. So it's kind of our, our focus right now is a lot more blurred, certainly than really any other age range. So it really is both, you know, you can, again, learn about the world around you and develop these skills 
but still through narrative. And, and kids learn really, really great through stories. It's such an awesome format for teaching. At the same time, it's a product for the home right now. You know, we sell, we're a subscription product, we sell to families, and it's meant more for use in the home than it is in the classroom. That doesn't mean that there isn't a way to use it in the classroom and that we might not go that way there. So yeah, like a lot of things about Hellosaurus, which maybe we'll see, it's a mix. And when you do new things, you try to combine a couple of things together and see what happens. That's awesome. And James, I had the benefit of knowing you for a while. So I know that you're a child at heart. But besides <laughs> that, how did you think of this business? Why did you decide to start this company in the first place? Yeah, that's funny. We, we at Hellosaurus, we describe ourselves as a bunch of big kids that never quite grew up and <laughs> in all the best ways. So I started Hellosaurus really through the lens of HQ Trivia. So as you mentioned, and I appreciate it, you know, HQ Trivia for listeners that don't know was a platform for live interactive game shows. So we really focused on trivia as is in the name, HQ Trivia. But we also built a couple different types of game shows as well. And maybe sounds obvious, but if you're going to make interactive programming, you really need content format that's fundamentally interactive. Right? So game shows made sense. You sit on the couch, you watch Jeopardy, you scream at the TV. Why don't we put you in the TV? Was basically the theory behind our, our first show there. Um, as we started to explore a lot of different content types there, dating shows, shopping shows, reality television, sports, it became pretty clear that those weren't formats that were fundamentally interactive in the same way. And kids media, kids educational entertainment was the extreme of interaction, right? There is no fourth wall when you watch Sesame Street or Blue's Clues or Dora the Explorer. You know, the kid is, is asked to participate and jump into that narrative. Of course, televisions make that really hard because you can't talk to a TV, you can't touch it, you can't play with it. And so, you know, ultimately, again, just we knew that when developing interactive software, we needed a content format that was fundamentally interactive to really, again, mix or merge the two. And so that's where kids media started becoming incredibly obvious. Uh, and then I just, I dove headfirst into the space. I know a lot more about fire trucks than I did before I started this, that's for <laughs> sure, but have learned a ton. And that Again, as we can get to, that's become even more clear that kids media is really the, the perfect place for interactive software and technology. I think that's so interesting. And it's wild to me that we have the technology available to us to provide for this interaction. And yet nobody has really married that. Like, you know, I can order a sandwich from whatever deli and, you know, have that arrive at my doorstep in a matter of minutes. But to your point before, I'm watching TV and it's like no feedback and, and just totally a one-way street. So yeah. that bi-directionality, I think, is is super compelling. And, and yeah, applying it to children seems like the most obvious choice. And it's something that we've been talking about for years and years and years, right? I mean, there are movies from the 80s that have versions of interactive televisions. Winky Dink and You is kind of the first interactive kids TV show from like the 60s, where you basically put a piece of plastic on your TV and draw over it. So these concepts that we've been thinking about for a while, I think another intricacy, again, of the kids media world is we as adults are still fairly tied to our TVs, our computers for longer form content consumption, whether that be educational or entertaining. Kids, you know, under 13 are pretty much exclusively on, on mobile devices, on phones and tablets, right? And so when 99% of consumption happens on these devices, we can start leveraging all this amazing technology to bring interaction into the content experience. Whereas when you're still watching TV on your couch and you have this remote, interaction is a lot harder for a paradigm. So just another reason why the kids world has felt so right for the types of experiences that we're developing. Totally. 
I remember James, when I was a kid, I used to read those choose your own adventure books mm-hmm. where you would like get to a certain point and it would say, do you go to the door to the left or do you go to the door to the right? And if you go to the door to the left, skip to page right. 55. And they were really fun and they really engaged me in a way that was unique. And I feel like that is almost V1, very, very low tech mm-hmm. version of your product. And, you know, now it's just so cool that you can, you know, leverage technology. And these kids are so able and well-equipped to handle iPads that that experience can get exponentially more exciting and invigorating for these kids and engage them in a really fun way. For sure. And we can take engagement from these breakpoints to constant, right? It doesn't need to be that you make one move every 10 pages or every five minutes. You can actually be involved throughout the entire experience. Choose your own adventure as a format is something that I can talk for a very long time on. I have a very complicated relationship with choose your own adventure because it's, it's interactive of a type, but again, it's, it's a decision once every little while. It doesn't really involve, you're not actually, you're a director. You're not like an actor. And like, we want the kid to be in the experience and not just like dangling the strings. Netflix has done a lot of really awesome work around choose your own adventure content, but you know, Bandersnatch for grownups, Captain Underpants for kids, Where in the World of Carbon San Diego, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. They, that's where they've kind of focused their interactive work. We don't spend a lot of time on choose your own adventure, specifically one, because again, we want the kid in it and not directing. And two, from a content production perspective, it's very, very different, right? Like Netflix spends years developing one hour long special because if you have branching narratives, you have to film lots and lots of different versions of the same thing, even though a particular user might go through that path only one way. And so we're saying that Choose Your Own Adventure is a great place to start. We think we can do even more engagement. And then from a content perspective, it's harder. And we'll leave some of the big Choose Your Own Adventure projects to the folks that have a lot deeper production budgets than we do. That's super interesting. I love that. And I think it ties really well with you know a theme we've been seeing more broadly around, you know, metaverses and, and virtual realities mm-hmm. and, and people, you know, in Roblox, for example, which is an index portfolio company, people wanting to be the main character and yeah. to live in these worlds and consume content in these worlds as well, but to be a part of it and not just be sort of a third party observer as they historically have been, whether it's in a choose your own adventure or just in a regular television watching experience. For sure. And, and that, also relates to other nuggets of the kids' media world and that the parasocial relationship that a kid develops with the on-screen characters is very different from the ones that we develop from the on-screen characters that we watch. When you're growing up, and this has come up recently in some of the the social media to-dos around Steve from Blue's Clues coming back in his 25th <laughs> anniversary. And I encourage listeners to go watch that video again because he comes back and says, I went off to college, I'm back. Here's all the things that I did. You know, that's you, me, at least um, I will say you, but definitely me uh, and Steve and Blue developed a very strong parasocial relationship there because that's what kids media is about and a really engaging and being with the character. Whereas in the grown up world, it's a little bit more of being apart from or observing. And so yeah, again, kids media interaction allows us to to jump in and really get involved. Totally. And this is why you see kids wanting to dress up like Barney in our generation, yeah. maybe now like, you know, SpongeBob, I guess is still our generation. Yeah. They want to dress up like these characters because they want to be them. They want to be in those worlds. And sadly, I don't dress up like the people from Succession or Breaking <laughs> Bad, even though that's my favorite media content. But when you're a child, I think that impulse to really be a part of these worlds is is very strong. And, and I think Hellosaurus does a really interesting job of, of tapping into that very human 
very childlike desire. Yeah, I appreciate um, that. So James, what do you mean by this parasocial relationship? Great question. And and thank you for asking, because I think it sometimes can be construed as a negative one or like maybe the academic term. Parasocial relationships are one-sided relationships where one person is very emotionally attached to the other and the other doesn't quite know about their existence. Again, that sounds negative, but in kids media and kids television, it's actually quite positive, right? When Steve from Blue's Clues, just the example that we use, or, or maybe even better, on Hillosaurus, when our characters or our guides kind of turn to the kid, they're looking directly down the barrel of the camera. They're asking the kid for help and engagement. And kids can develop really strong relationships with that character and with that on-screen subject. The on-screen subject, of course, doesn't know about James or a younger version of myself holding the iPad, looking at Hellosaurus. And so that's why it's parasocial, right? It's not live. It's not an actual two-way conversation, but it's very important that the kid feels heard and feels like they're actually part of that experience when an on-screen subject on Hellosaurus can turn to them and ask them to be a part of the journey of the narrative of the story. I love that. Kids are the center of their own worlds. And I think you've done a really good job of making sure that, you know, your product is attuned to that psychology and makes them feel special and important, which is a really crucial part of, of growing up. Yeah. I want to transition a bit and, and hear a little bit about professionally how you transitioned from a product role at HQ Trivia and prior to that at Google to being the CEO. What were some of the main challenges associated with that? Yeah, to my team that will maybe be listening to this too, they might be able to answer that question better than I can. But personally for me, I think part of it is just, and maybe this is obvious, but letting go of the nitty gritty details that product allows you to dive into. You know, when you're focusing primarily on product, you can have hour-long design reviews and write these massive specs and do weeks and weeks of user interviews. You know, all of that stuff is very helpful as a CEO too. But of course, our business is more than just product, right? And so I think one thing that's definitely been challenging is letting go of some of that ownership and control over the smaller details on the product side, because you know, I became a product manager and continue to do it as head of product at HQ because I, I loved working in product and no surprise there. And so I think part of that transition, which I think any CEO uh, has to deal with, likely, like you don't start out as a CEO generally. And so you, you generally have to give up control over the thing that you love doing most beforehand. And that's certainly true for, for me and product as I kind of made that transition. Absolutely. It's hard. And, and especially for a company like yours, where so product centric to have that mm -hmm. maturity, to be able to take a step back and, and trust that the people you hired are going to make really good decisions themselves. And that sometimes your time is, is better spent elsewhere. I'm sure it's challenging to others who are, are trying to do the same or, or considering, you know, leaving a product role to, to mm -hmm. start something. What advice would you have for them? I would say that just setting a, a really strong initial framework. Like I think a lot of product work really can be done by staying, you know, foundational and then at a high level, right? So set the expectation mm -hmm. of everything you'd like to do and set that foundation and then find great people who you can trust in each of those pillars and then just kind of observe from a high level. So I think it's just don't be afraid to, to make very sometimes non-intuitive or product-based initial foundation assumptions. So I'm not quite saying to get rid of that, but make sure you can just find people that you can trust to build on top of your foundation. I love that. And I guess, you know, the thing that I think is so unique and special about your business in many ways is that 
your consumer is complex. I mean, some people would think that children are very simple, mm -hmm. but but they're actually really complicated and they don't always tell you what they want. And so I, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about what people don't understand about kids' content businesses and, and why it might be so different from other content verticals that are focused on adults. For sure. So I, I know we've touched on some of this in, in a few different areas. I mean, let's, let's start maybe with content. You know, one is when you're making content for the kids' world, you really focus on quality over quantity. In many other areas, of course, quality matters, but quantity does too, right? You're not going to sign up as an adult for a platform that has 10 things that you can watch only those 10 things. Whereas in the kids media world, actually quality is super, super important and quantity really isn't as much. And a replay value is incredibly high. The like very classic example of this is bring up Blue's Clues again, but I guess it was important. So or it still is. So Blue's Clues, they were one of the first kind of kids media properties to really realize the power of repetition. And so they had a date when we were growing up, they had a daily television slot, but they would actually air the same episode every day for the whole week. And they did a lot of fancy research around this and found that kids not only enjoyed it when you know, the later in the week, you know, by the seventh day, they enjoyed the episode more and they learned more from it because you're, you're dealing with young developing minds that aren't picking up on every single detail and every single piece. And so again, quality is super important and that replay value is is even more important. And, and so dealing with a content model that encourages replay, encourages finding new things is different in the kids' media world. And the second piece of that is just the evergreen nature of the content that you make. Sesame Street has been around for 50 years or so. And sure, lots, of, lots has changed in some ways, but in other ways, very little has changed. The Sesame Street episode from 50 years ago looks pretty similar to what you get now, even though the picture quality is a little bit better. And so the types of experiences and lessons for a four-year-old today and a four-year-old 10 years from now will likely be very similar. So when you develop content, you have the benefit of making something that will stay around for a long time, but also the responsibility of focusing on something that can stay around for a long time. Whereas, you know, season one of Stranger Things, probably nobody watches anymore. And so just to kind of summarize that from a business perspective, though, it's also very beneficial for us, frankly, right? You know, if you're developing a content business or you're asking people to invest in a business that involves content, focusing on a content type that you don't have to make that much of because it has a very high replay value and it's good forever is a very great business relative to other content businesses. Of course, it's also super cheap to make. Right. You know, we can make stuff for pennies on the dollar of what you make for grownups because you don't need massive studios, special effects. You know, so Sesame Street, again, is a couple puppets on a set that's been around for a long time. And so it's also super cheap to make, which is great for investors and the business side of things. But I think those pieces about kids content, I think, are unique, you know, evergreen replay value. That's fascinating and so well said. And I think the point on investors is is a really interesting one. I mean, for a long time, investors have shied away from media businesses, traditional VC investors, I should say, have shied away from media businesses because super high cost and that evergreen nature just doesn't exist in traditional mm -hmm. media. You know, there's really low replay value. And so those costs don't really go away. And that infinite scalability that you see in a traditional SaaS model hasn't really shown up in many media businesses. Now, I think what's so cool about Hellosaurus is you're able to get really strong engagement. You're able to capture attention really well, and you're able to monetize that. 
And yet the costs are actually not as crazy as, as a regular media business would be. And so you sort of get this sweet spot where you get all the good things about media, which is super high engagement and really strong loyalty. And you get none of the bad things about traditional media, which is really high cost. And you're able to build this kind of hybrid model between a media company with a kind of like a SaaS cost structure, yeah. which as an investor myself is a, a really, really compelling proposition. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I appreciate that. And of course, I agree. <laughs> and, and the other piece that I'd add from a content perspective is one other way to look at low cost is who can make this, right? If we had a great idea for a feature length film, it probably wouldn't matter because we wouldn't be able to pull together the funds or the, the set or whatever it might be to get that done. Whereas super cheap costs also comes with low production needs, right? And so you can find really great creators that we work with, you know, literally out of a spare bedroom in their home. And in a time like COVID, where some of us are still stuck inside in that way, it hasn't really slowed our production in the same way because we can make it, you know, at home and we can find great creators that know how to make this stuff on their own in a way that just really doesn't exist again in any other kind of content type for adults. I love that. And I think it was really interesting to dive into this very unique model of having media-like engagement with more of a software cost structure and the scalability associated with that. We'll take a quick break and come back with some final thoughts on your journey so far and the future of Hellosaurus. Awesome. James, we talked a lot about Hellosaurus and in many ways how it's a little bit of a, a perfect, ingenious model. I'm sure it wasn't always easy and I'm sure there's still so many things you're working out. You know, to our listeners today, maybe it sounds like you've cracked the code here, <laughs> but how did you get here? Did you always crack the code? Do you feel like you're still cracking it? Great question. I will say maybe this harkens back to learnings in the beginning, but I don't think anyone's ever cracked the code anywhere. Uh, I don't think there's anybody that has. I mean, I think we've definitely learned a lot and some things are working, which is great. But yeah, of course, things have evolved. I would say that when I was discussing starting in the kids media space, another big trend that pushed me toward this world that I didn't mention before is a lot of the legal challenges that YouTube was having around their kids' media business. So uh, in kind of late 2018, YouTube was fined hundreds of millions of dollars the way that they handle kids on their platform. I would encourage anybody to go down the internet rabbit hole to learn a, a bunch more. I actually went down to DC for some of the hearings, which was really fun. And they're all recorded. Really fun for me. Probably not really fun for everyone, but still, <laughs> I would encourage everyone to go look at. But long, long story short, YouTube had always said, we're a platform for those over the age of 13. There are no kids on here. If there are kids, they're on our YouTube Kids app. And that was categorically false. You know, we work with some of the largest YouTubers in the world on Hellosaurus, you know, that have 50, 70 million plus subscribers. And they are not making videos that over 13 year olds are, are watching, under 13 year olds are watching. And then we heard a lot from parents about the lack of safety and quality on YouTube. So to get back to your question, kind of a long way of saying, we started this theory of like, well, YouTube isn't cutting it. Can we make something that is, you know, can we make an interactive version of YouTube specifically designed from the ground up for kids? And some of that lives on in our product today, for sure. But we've become much more, and, and I think our conversation has shown this, 
we've, we have much more of an eye toward what content really works than YouTube does, right? YouTube is very algorithmically focused and kind of like, let the internet decide what kind of get bubbles up to the top. That doesn't work in kids either, right? Curation is super important as you figure out as a parent, what am I going to feel great handing over to my kids? So instead of a little bit of a more open-ended, let's make a better YouTube, you know, for kids approach, our angle is, well, there are certainly some difference in this, but our angle is a little bit more of an interactive masterclass for kids, you know, focusing on this balance between education and entertainment, but still directly through the lens of what kids would want to see, you know, learning about what is a music producer and what do they do, uh, rather than what are the tactical skills that you would necessarily need to produce music. I'm sure there are some savant six-year-old out there that could produce music. That's, That's not really our focus here. But again, figuring out the framework and format that really works for content and narrowing in on that uh, and where production costs can be low, where evergreen replay value are incredibly high, how we can balance that, the benefits of education, the the benefits of entertainment, and all of those things have grown and evolved over time. Super cool. One thing that really strikes me about the way that you approach your entire business is just what clear attention you pay to the psychology of your end consumer. And that I think really shows up in how you built your product. And then as we were mentioning before, I think one of the key takeaways here is that it actually ends up impacting the business model because of this psychology of children where they actually want to see things on repeat and they want to be spoken to, but they don't necessarily need constantly new content. And that can show up in the way that the business is built too. That for me is something that I think has been been really interesting to learn. And then also I think it's been, you know, a key takeaway for me from this conversation has been just the experience for you transitioning from a product role to a, a CEO role and, you know, having to sometimes take a step back. But it's clear to me, and, and this is one of the joys of working with product-focused founders, it's clear to me that you still retain that real nugget of product centricity that comes from your time at HQ and, and your time at Google before that. So before we wrap up here, one of the key takeaways today for me, which my co-host Brian was also super interested to understand, is just you know the extent to which understanding the psychology of your consumer, of children, has really impacted the way that you built the business and how that in turn impacts the way that the business model can show up. And I think that's for me something that has really stuck with me about this conversation. The other thing that, and we can end on this, that Brian and I love to do just to wrap up our time today is an exercise that we like to call brands as people. Mm. And that's where we describe a brand as if they were a real person, you know, in wardrobe, appearance, behavior, lifestyle. So if you had to choose a person that Hellosaurus would be, who do you think would most resemble Hellosaurus? (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. So I mean, we, I would say that Hellosaurus is like the greatest neighbor you ever had. It's like somebody that's incredibly empathetic and self-aware, but also is like helping you paint your wall and also fixing your car and also like putting your lemonade stand together. Just like the, just the greatest neighbor you've ever had. And we talk about internally in our design, just kind of bring it back to our product a bit, like making design that's kids with an S, not kids with a Z. Like there's a little too much in the kids world that's like kids with a, with a Z and it's a little zany, a little out there. And there's room for that. But how do we bring proper product and like, you know, great visuals that we'd expect as adults to the kids world? So uh, maybe those are two different threads, but that's kind of how I would think about Hellosaurus as a person. 
I love that. And I love the idea of a neighbor who's also always focused on me and always asking how I'm doing <laughs> and doesn't doesn't expect anything in return, yeah. never wants me to pick up their packages or anything. Yeah, well, maybe <laughs> they'd love if you'd make them brownies every once in a while. It, you know, it can go both ways. <laughs> awesome. Well, James, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Even though you put Russian dressing on a bagel, <laughs> I will forgive you for this because you've taught me so much about kids' entertainment transitioning from a, a product to a CEO role and your incredible business and all that you've built. So thank you for joining us. And it's great to see you as always. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hands On. We always get so much out of these conversations and we hope you do too. Please be sure to stay tuned on your favorite podcast networks for upcoming episodes. And don't hesitate to like, share, comment, or reach out. We also encourage our listeners to follow us and Index Ventures social media channels like LinkedIn, Twitter, and TikTok to stay up to date on the latest investments and initiatives we're supporting. Hands On is a production of Index Ventures and Studio Pod Media with Justin Berardi producing. I'm Molly. And I'm Brian. Thanks. Yes, thanks from all of us at Hands On. Keep the ideas coming.